there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work in multimedia journalism in a country where speaking the truth makes you a target for arrest, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the CEO and executive editor of the Philippines-based online news organization, Rappler.com. She was also the 2018 Time Magazine Person of the Year, among many other accolades. But before I introduce you to Maria Ressa, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays, and it's got unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my journalistic Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my incredible next guest is Maria Ressa, the co-founder, executive editor, and CEO of Rappler, the top digital-only news site that's leading the fight for press freedom in the Philippines. As the head of Rappler, Maria has endured constant political harassment, including having been arrested twice and forced to post bail nine times one within the last two weeks. And we're doing this interview, by the way, in early December 2020, in order for her to stay out of prison. We're not doing the interview in order for her to stay out of prison, but hey, it could help. It could help. All of it ordered by the Philippine government led by its authoritarian president, Rodrigo Duterte. Maria has been honored around the world for her work in fighting disinformation, fake news, and attempts to silence the free press. In 2018, she was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year, and she won the prestigious Golden Pen of Freedom Award from the World Association of Newspapers and News Publishers. During her 30-plus years as a journalist working in Asia, and prior to co-founding Rappler in 2012, Maria served as CNN's bureau chief and correspondent based in the Philippines and in Indonesia. She then went on to work for every major television network in the Philippines, including as the senior vice president of the largest multi-platform news operation, in that country. Maria, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? Very much. My coffee's with me and it is so good to be with you, Andrea. Oh, it is. I just said, oh, I can't believe it. But I really mean, I mean like, <laughs> oi, oh, you know, I'm getting verklempt even thinking about it. I want our listeners to know that Maria and I are friends and former colleagues who go way, way back, but I want to say like 27 years to sort of the yeah. early 1990s when she and I were both young journalists working in Asia for CNN. We were both young bureau chiefs, really sort of getting traction in our careers. And oh my goodness, look where you are now, Maria. It is such a delight and a privilege to get to speak with you, to tap into your wisdom and your insights with the Time for Coffee community. Oh my God, you're crazy. So first, thank you for having me, but stop being so modest. Everyone listening, Andrea was the person to be, the correspondent to be when we were working together, you know, the when she was uh, in China first and then Japan. I used to have to take over when she went on vacation. So that was kind of fun. But I spent that time 
watching her stand up so that I could learn to do better. Right. So it is it's so good. I've learned a ton from you, Andrea. And it's so great to to be doing this with you now. Oh, my goodness. I look back on the journalism that I was doing in Asia back then. And at times, Maria, I cringe. I really do. Because back when I was in China, for example, it was really hard to have government sources. I mean, like, I know that the New York Times and some of those big news organizations were able to cultivate government sources, but I wasn't doing it. And it's just, it's so essential to have people who are inside government, who are talking to you, especially in times like these. And I didn't learn that until I went back to the States after I'd been in Asia and started reporting from the State Department. So you're incredibly kind and generous, but truly I feel like there was so much I still had left to learn. So before we get into the incredible things that you and your team are doing at Rappler right now and your career as a journalist, even since CNN, I thought, Maria, that it might be interesting for our young listeners to hear a bit about what it was that actually inspired you to co-found Rappler in the first place. It was 2011 when you all started talking about it. Weren't there already a lot of news outlets in the Philippines at that time? The traditional news groups were entrenched, right? So the two largest television stations, I managed the news group of the largest one, which was just shut down by Duterte. I mean, the franchise was was taken away during this, the lockdown of COVID. But look, I during that time period in 2010, 2011, I realized that I had worked for what we started calling legacy news organizations, big corporate media. And big corporate media, like anything, needs to continue to bring in revenues. And yet everything that was innovative or that was changing our landscape was happening online, on the internet. And inevitably at that period of time, the people that the traditional news groups were putting on the internet were either their youngest or the third string. This is at least in in ABS-CBN, the news group that I headed. So at that point, I was like, I think we should be exploring the internet. But you can't take your best journalists and put them on the internet because you put them on your highest revenue earner, speaking as like the head of the news group, right? Our primetime newscast had our best journalists because that was a minute per minute battle for ratings. But what Rappler, the reason why we wanted to do it is because I knew that something was happening. Traditional news groups were missing it because we had too much invested in the past. And so that's what it was really in 2011, the end of 2010. I resigned from ABS-CBN. I was just going to write a book, but, you know, I, with three other co-founders, all three of whom also worked with ABS, you know, Glenda Gloria was managing our 24-hour cable channel. Beth was managed, Beth Rendoso was managing all of the newscasts and creating them for the main commercial channel. And then Chai Hofileño was head of investigatives and standards and ethics. So, the four of us kind of came together and said, we got to try this. And we left that job and it was an experiment. So we figured, you know, we'd give it a year. And in that year, we would, we wanted to learn to explore this new landscape, what the internet meant and how it would impact news. What will the future of journalism look like? And then I guess if it succeeded, then we would be somewhere different. And if it failed, we gave it a year. And it turned out to be this ride, this roller coaster that, my lordy, look at where it's brought me now, right? The other thing that came hand in hand with that is the four of us are journalists. We created a news organization by journalists for, you know, much as I did really like the business of journalism, that became my task. 
finding a new sustainable business model for journalism. And I think we found it. What was your vision at that time for Rappler? We have three pillars of Rappler. So the elevator pitch of Rappler is that was simple. We build communities of action. The food we feed our communities is journalism, right? And that's important because I had struggled. Andrew, you know, I struggled with this the entire time we were at CNN because we live in our countries. I live in Southeast Asia. And yet I take the stories, translate it to a Western international audience, and then we throw it in a black hole. Living in the Philippines, when I chose to come home and live here for good, living here, I wanted impact. I wanted journalism to be a force for good, right? To have positive change forward. And, you know, at the beginning, look at how I dragged the Kool-Aid. Our opening salvo was social media for social good. We had annual social good summits. Social media for social good was a few years, and then it became tech for social good, technology to jumpstart development, because there really is tremendous power to reorganize and change our society based on technology and data. And I was hoping that in countries like ours, technology could do that. But I guess the three pillars that we had is simple. It's still our pillars today. Technology, journalism is the second, and third is community or civic engagement, right? We build communities of action. So in the dystopian world we live in now, which is, you know, starting in 2017, Freedom House said that in at least 28 countries around the world, cheap armies on social media were rolling back democracies. But by 2019, that number was more than 70 countries around the world. That included the Philippines and the United States. So in this world, you have to look at the role of technology after it bumped off news organizations as gatekeepers. So for a long time, we kept the public sphere safe by being responsible and liable for facts. If we published lies, we could get sued. We are accountable for it. We have standards and ethics manuals that will keep us on that road. But what happened when news organizations are no longer the gatekeepers and tech took over that role? Well, social media took the money, but they abdicated the responsibility. And that's part of the problems that we are dealing with now, this dystopia where lies laced with anger and hate actually spread faster and further than facts, right? And without facts, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. So without any of that, you can't have democracy. And oftentimes, news organizations come together and they say, you know, well, we have to restore trust. We have to do something. And I always, every time I'm on those things, I just say, guys, it's not in our control. Because the very platforms that distribute the news today, the world's largest distributor of news is Facebook, prioritizes the distribution of lies over facts. That's a fact. That's what the data shows us. So you can actually say, that it is biased against facts and biased against journalists. So in this world, you need to get, get technology. That is the distribution platform. So how do we deal with that? The second is journalism. How does the form and substance of journalism change to these times of information abundance versus scarcity? And then the third part is community, right? Civil society, civic engagement. Again, you go back to our mission. We build communities of action, NGOs, CSOs, groups that form to protect democracy. How do they know which direction to push in? How can human rights organizations push for certain actions, hold government account when they don't have the facts? This is the dilemma we're in today. And that's part of the reason I think that the, what, the pillars of Rappler that we started in 2012 I think the supply is global. As you were talking, Maria, I was just trying to remember what the Washington Post's tagline is, and I'm just going to Google it while we speak, because it's something about maybe, oh, democracy, democracy dies, dies in darkness. In darkness. Yes. So yes. what you just said, I think that thinking about journalism, the act of journalism as a bulwark against the opposite of democracy, whether it's fascism, yes. authoritarianism, 
is not something that we have talked about for decades. I would say certainly not in the West. And now what you're saying is, really, since you founded Rappler, but much more so over the last four years, it is front and center. You see it as it is the source of facts to empower communities to hold the line. Correct. Correct. And you know, here's the data that I would put back. This is the reason why journalists all around the world are under intense attack. This is the reason why I have cases that could potentially send me to prison for the rest of my life, for almost 100 years, if you go by the cumulative maximum penalties on these cases. And I just got a ninth arrest warrant, as you pointed out two weeks ago. So the dangers of being a journalist today trying to hold power to account has increased exponentially. We are attacked for a particular reason. And the digital populists, the authoritarians, let's call them digital authoritarians who have come up, who have been enabled by the technology. The reason why populism is has spread so much faster and further, the reason why Presidents Trump and Duterte, for example, have their I'm going to say messages because it's, I don't think it's an ideology. Their populist messages actually change identity politics because they appeal. It is now, and this is the power of the business model of the social media platforms, they can atomize messages to specific audiences that no one sees. So the lies are, you don't even know you're being lied to right? Or being manipulated. You think it is still the old world, but they send out different messages to different groups. All those messages don't have, in fact, probably don't say the same thing. So this is a problem. The first, I think, trying to come out of this, the first solution is to regulate social media platforms to make sure that there is accountability. We're demanding accountability from our governments, right? And and I'll say my battle in the Philippines began really in 2016 when I demanded accountability from President Duterte and from Facebook. So, you know, four years later, when not enough has been done to protect our users and the integrity of facts on these platforms, we're demanding accountability, fighting the impunity of Duterte and Zuckerberg. That is insane to put the two of them together, right? But that's the world we live in. Maria, I want to get into, in just a moment, what has been going on, at least touch on it, with you and the Duterte administration. But before I do, could you just give us a sort of broad brushstroke about a typical day for you right now, Maria, as the executive editor and CEO of Rappler, when you're not being hauled off, you know, by whatever court order to mm. potentially go to jail, when you are doing the work, the incredibly important work of trying to educate Filipinos about what in fact is happening in their country. Could you just take us into a typical day of what you do? I think I'll take it in the pillars again of Rappler, which is tech, journalism, and community, right? So the first part is we rolled out a new tech platform May 3rd. So in the middle of our pandemic lockdown, we roll out a completely new technology platform for Rappler, which is a little bit crazy because we're in lockdown, right? We're So it's hard, but it's important because tech built by journalists protect the public sphere. That's built into the design, but it, and also meant to build communities, right? So the first is, you know, on a typical day, I will look at the platform. We are in the middle of agile development, two week sprints where we are continuing to build the tech. That takes a chunk of every day. I think the second, in terms of our journalism, I look at what we do, I monitor our analytics. I look at both the internal chain of the stories that are being worked on and coming up. 
we have a new executive editor. So I used to have three titles, CEO, president, and executive editor. Given that I am under such attack by the government, I don't see myself. I wanted to make sure that editorially Rappler moves in a direction separate from me. So I have let go of any potential conflicts of interest by naming another executive editor this Mm -hmm. year. So this is Glenda Gloria. So our journalism, and I look at both form and substance, and that links up to the way we build the tech. And then finally, our communities, they're different things when you're talking about building community. There's the tactical, which has to do with SEO, which has to do with, you know, how do we perform in terms of discovery? Because right now, for most news groups around the world, discovery is Google and Facebook. That's why so much of our future is in their hands, because information is power, right? So I look at that. I look at building real communities from our advertisers to our other clients. We also do research. We do data and tech to our members. So we started when we came under attack in 2018, we began our Rappler Plus. It's the first membership program in the Philippines, and it's doing very well because it's organized around our values of protecting democracy, speaking truth to power. And that can be like, I hope you will do a Rappler Plus webinar with me where our members will ask questions. I trigger it with someone doing work that is impactful, that will help their lives. So there is both micro and macro, what we used to call in television news. And that can be something I would do in the evening or in the morning. But you know, all of that is premised on, that's the day-to-day, right? But then I have days like the Friday when I was running a board meeting and I find out that a ninth arrest warrant had been issued. And if I didn't get to post bail by the time the cashiers closed at 4 p.m. So, you know, traffic in Manila is like an hour to two hours. I find out at 2.30 that I have an arrest warrant and I run. Like I hadn't even been, there's no obligation to tell you an arrest warrant has been issued for you. So I run there and I barely make it in time. But if I had not been able to post bail, I would have been arrested and detained for four nights because it was a long holiday weekend, right? So there are all of these things. It's like juggling. And you have to keep all the balls up in the air. And like we used to do with breaking news, whatever that breaking news is, it will determine the course of where the next step goes and which ball you will either pick up or drop. That's kind of my day. (laughs) Oh, Oh my God, Maria. Unbelievable. It really is. I want to pick up on something that you mentioned. You mentioned that you redid your website in May of 2020. This interview is being done, by the way, in early December 2020. It most likely will not make it into the ether until early 2021. But you also mentioned in our Espresso Shots episode, and please check out show notes to see if Maria's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. But you mentioned in that, that your business model has been evolving and was evolving before COVID so that you no longer really rely on advertising anymore for revenue. So what do you do now for revenue? So, you know, when the government filed 11 cases against us in 2018, they tried to shut us down January of 2018 by revoking our license to operate. We challenged all that in court and are still operating. But by April of 2018, we dropped 49% of our advertising revenue. They were scared. Money never has the courage unless it's, it's headed by somebody with the values that are there to protect democracy. So oftentimes, if you're a journalist or a news group under attack, you will assume that advertisers will shy away from you. And we saw that. So 49%. We went into emergency mode at that point, And, you know, we looked at what we were doing as a news organization. And we, I think it's both a blessing and a curse that We've been under attack since 2016 because that forced us to develop 
a methodology for studying disinformation as early as 2016. So by August of 2016, we were pulling data down to understand what these attacks were because I needed to understand that before you can fight back effectively. So we developed this methodology that we then, by April of 2018, we looked at that and realized we're not the only company under attack on social media. In fact, many companies are having to deal with this and they're calling these crisis communications teams. And we were like, but we have a database that shows us the networks of disinformation. We see exactly when a pro-Duterte network pivots and attacks a company, right? It's in the data. Here's the part that I know we will spend the next decade unraveling globally is that Nothing ever disappears. The data is there. And I really hope that Facebook and Google preserve that. We can track this. So impunity should not be possible. So what we did in 2018 was we developed what we did for ourselves. We productized it. We turned it into a product that we handed over to our sales team. And that in 2019 then enabled us to do well. Like it was our very first year because we're a startup from 2012. And in the original five-year plan, we would break even in our fifth year, which is 2016, right? We did move there. By January 2016, we had positive net income and we would have broken even except the attacks against us began in 2016. So that pushed us back. 2019 was our first year of positive net income. We gave a bonus to our folks because of that. And it was because we were able to find this new, I believe it's sustainable business model, but again, only as good as our ability to move with the tech. So, so Maria, I'm, gonna, um, I'm just going to interject here because there's something I'm not following. What did you productize? What was it that you turned into revenue? Tracking attackers, right? So for example, all data can be categorized into structured or unstructured data. A company will have first-party data, which will include their customers, their clients, the what your customers will voluntarily give to you. In the old world, social media platforms didn't have that first-party data. It came to news groups directly. Over the last few years, we've lost that power ourselves. Unstructured data is social media, right? So, Andrew, remember when I used to track terrorist networks. Mm -hmm. Well, my new terrorist networks are networks of disinformation. By doing our investigative journalism, for example, we've been able to find like in January 2018, bottom up the connection of the networks of disinformation in the Philippines to the Internet Research Agency, to Russian disinformation networks. And tracking this, uh, Rappler is one of two Filipino fact-checking partners Just doing fact-checking alone is a -a whack-a-mole game. But once you prove a lie, then you discover the networks that spread the lie. Then you will have your own recidivist network. So that I would call like a terrorist database. And then you can see how those networks move. So what we did is, instead of thinking about this as marketing for companies, for example, for client companies... Instead of thinking about it as marketing, it is also building community like we do for Rappler. So crisis management is one part of building community. So essentially, we developed the product that we sell is taking unstructured data and giving you two things, the networks that are both part of your community and against you. And then the second part is we use natural language processing to be able to cluster the messages about you in moments of time. And this is these are all things we developed to protect ourselves from the attacks, right? So you see, like, crisis really is opportunity if you are agile enough to find that moment and to create. Aha. So you are selling this information to other companies to help them. It's a method of analysis, and a methodology of tracking the unstructured data. Mm. Exactly. So, so it's not even so much that we sell them data, but they tell us, here's the problem. We analyze it using technology and investigative journalism techniques. 
And then we give them that to be able to have managers make informed decisions. Incredible. This actually reminds me a little bit of what our former colleague, our former CNN colleague, David Clinch, is doing (laughs) with his company, Storyful, Storyful, where they are working the dark web. Is this, am I getting that right? Or have I gone off the deep end? No, he's doing that. So Storyful was originally created to help news groups identify what is factual and what isn't, right? Where things come from. I think what we do is we take a snapshot of the virtual world. Company is under attack. And I'll give you an example in the Philippines, because sometimes companies are attacked by government forces. But you won't see that because it, unless you look and identify the networks online that are attacking you, then you'll only see the proxy. These are all proxy wars, especially if you're using fake accounts to do it. But everything is measurable on social media. And these social media platforms have that data, you know. So that's part of the reason. The other part that's evolved is as I've studied this over the last four years, I've really began to demand a lot more action from social media platforms because as they allow these information operations, that's what we call them, influence operations in, you know, when you were at State Department, these would be like Russia, for example, has included influence operations as part of its military arsenal. This is how they weaken the psyche of a nation from within. But as all of this is happening, when social media platforms allow these influence operations on their platforms, they make more money. So this shouldn't be happening and they should also be held to account. Mm. Oh my goodness. Well, fascinating and brilliant, Maria. Brilliant. Absolutely incredible. I want our listeners to know as well that I went on the Rappler site today. And just in case you think that everything that's there is super weighty, there's a story about a celebrity baby about losing your sex drive after marriage, (laughs) about a basketball tournament. And as I was reading this, and I really feel it's important because Rappler has a range of stories. These are not the stories that have placed you and Rappler in Duterte government, in the government's crosshairs. Not those stories. It's stories like the one that I think it's certainly one of the leads, if not the lead on Sunday, and it's Monday morning, your time right now, in early December 2020. And that story describes the death of a local mayor as an assassination. And you're quoting the Filipino vice president, Lenny Robredo. Right. And then at the end of that story, there are a couple of graphs summing up what has happened during the administration of President Duterte. And I'm going to quote here, Maria. It says, during the administration of President Rodrigo Duterte, at least 53 judges, prosecutors, and lawyers, as well as over 20 mayors and vice mayors, have been killed based on Rappler's tracking. And I actually just got chills as I read that. Can you put all of this into context, Maria? What has been happening in the Philippines over the last four plus years? Death by a thousand cuts of our democracy. Let me put it in a way that Americans see it, right? Like what you saw happening in the last few months with President Trump was contained. So look at President Trump's statement that the election was stolen from him. If you go to the Election Integrity Partnership, you will see that that message was seeded in 2019 by Russia Today, RT first seeded, amplified in 2020 by Steve Bannon, and then moving into elections, said top down by President Trump, right? So Imagine that happening 
millions of times. That is the Philippines today because the attacks against, and I know this personally, bottom-up exponential attacks and then echoed by President Duterte top-down. The weaponization of law follows that. That's my own experience, and we've seen this happen all the time. The big difference between the United States and the Philippines is that your institutions are stronger. But as you saw, just barely strong enough, right? Because the conditions influence operations change the way people think, right? The reason why identity politics has blown up so much is that it was fueled beginning in 2016. That's stated in the Mueller report. So let me take you to the Philippines. Well, here in the Philippines, our institutions are far weaker. We're far weaker and has essentially collapsed. We are patterned after the United States with three co-equal branches of government. But I would say in the first six months, we watched President Duterte essentially pull everything into the executive. And May 5, the legislature took away the franchise of our largest broadcaster, ABS-CBN, a news group I used to head. That's the largest broadcaster in the Philippines, the largest news group. And of course, let me crystallize that in my own experience. In 2016, the attacks online came bottom up. And let's say the narrative that was seeded is journalist equals criminal. In 2017, that same narrative came top down from President Duterte, journalist equals criminal. When he said this about me, I laughed, right? Because I thought I have a long track record. But a week after he said it, I got my first subpoena. Rappler got its first subpoena. In 2018, the government filed 11 cases against us. In 2019, I received and Rappler eight criminal cases filed. That means eight arrest warrants. I was arrested then. And then the trials began. I was spending four out of five days in different courts. And then in 2020, the first of those eight criminal cases, the cyber libel case, a decision comes. And that decision, I was found, along with a former colleague, guilty of cyber libel for a story that was published in 2012. I didn't write, edit, or supervise at a time when the law we supposedly violated didn't even exist. So this is the world we live in. And you can see how the online world to the collapse of institutions or the co-opting of institutions can lead to a change in the reality we live in. And the Did murders. I actually say that? And the oh murders. My God. Oh, so let me say the murders. In 2016, we began demanding accountability for the drug war, a very, very brutal drug war that began hours after President Duterte was sworn into office. Depending on who you speak with, the police will say it's about 8,000 people killed since 2016. The human rights groups say at least 27,000 as of a year ago, right? So the true number is the first casualty in, in my country's battle for truth. But 20 thousand people, right? Even 8,000. And this is the problem that I see. Those are the people who are defenseless, who are poor, who are gunned down. And the police acknowledge this. And the president just a few days ago just told the police again, you know, if they're coming after you, kill them. How can a president do this? Having said that, what the quote that you read is about the next ripple, the judges, the government officials that are trying to hold power to account or are being targeted because they can hold power to account. These are all things we're fighting and it goes even further down the rabbit hole. Where will it go? I'm not certain. And I guess that's where I just put one foot in front of the other to try to hold power to account. As I said in the introduction and as you have touched on, you have already been arrested twice and forced to post bail nine times. What is the end game, Maria? How far do you think this could go? I don't know. And I guess that's there's a great quote by Rilke, you know, where you just have to live your way into the answers. I guess what I do in my life right now is I know why I do what I do. I keep track of my values. 
you know, the standards and ethics of journalism, we do the right thing. And there's this Damocles sword hanging over our heads. And you try to swat away that hanging threat to keep doing your job. And I guess part of it is I think, what is the government so afraid of that they must constantly harass or try to intimidate me and Rappler or beyond us, Filipino journalists, right? They're constantly doing this. So there must be a story we're not yet doing or and we should be doing. That's how we move forward. We just keep doing our jobs. Maria, I'd like to flash back very quickly to when you were in college. You graduated from Princeton with a BA in English. Even though you started out pre-med and I'm trying to remember, were you majoring in microbiology? What was it that you were? I started with molecular biology and then I ended with English and theater and dance. And I did an independent thesis. I wrote a play. So, yeah, I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. (laughs) Did you Um, know what you were going to do with your English degree when you graduated? No, no. And I guess that's the lesson I learned. And the way I'm living my life right now is that you take every moment and learn from that. You keep track of your North Star and just walk towards it because you don't know how what you learn will change the course you take. That's the kind of world we live in today. And I guess, you know, it was hard to shift from pre-med to English because it seemed frivolous and certainly my parents weren't happy, but I learned how to understand people by making that shift. And ironically, both of those, by doing molecular biology, organic chemistry, and doing English and theater and dance, when I was with CNN, when I was, remember the sarin gas attack? Oh, yeah. Yes. So when I did that and we went to talk to the professor, my organic chem background helped me try to figure out the molecular makeup of the sarin gas. So... Everything that you learn along the way, make the choice to learn. And it goes into your arsenal of where you wind up and what you become. I want to pick up on that in just one second. But I have to ask you because I ask all of my guests. So what was your first job after you graduated, Maria? And do you remember how you got it? Oh, wow. So I was doing internship programs in New York City while I was still in college. And I was having to earn money for school, right? So I was on a work program as well. But after I took a Fulbright, that was how I got back to the Philippines because I certainly couldn't have afforded to fly here, right? So I, I had a Fulbright going the other way. I was an American coming to the Philippines on a Fulbright fellowship. And I walked into the government station here after... 21 years of Ferdinand Marcos. And I watched that news group and the people inside try to deal with the lifting of censorship. So this is also the other thing. I never understood how a society like the Philippines was held by Marcos for 21 years, right? And I used to have this debate because I was like, there had to have been complicity. Who were the people? And there really was. And I see it happening today, you know, in 2016, because absolutely, I understand power and money works hand in hand. This is why journalists, we're the fourth estate, because we call that out when there are abuses of power, when power colors outside the lie, and inevitably power and money work hand in hand for their vested interests. Who works for the public? Well, it should be government. When government doesn't, journalists call them out to account. Oh, my lordy. I took us down to another path. Andrea, did I answer your question? (laughs) Yes, you did. You totally (laughs) did. Absolutely. And I was hoping we could spend our remaining minutes together focused on the incredible commencement address you delivered to the Princeton class of 2020. You told them that as they ventured out, into our troubled world during an extremely difficult time to find a job, 
to figure out, and I'm quoting from you here, who you are, what's important to you, and what gives your life meaning. And you spoke about the three ways, Maria, that they could live their way. I just love the way you frame that. Live their way into the answers to those questions. Could you summarize for them, for our listeners, what those answers are? Oh, wow. So first, I will credit Rainier Maria Rilke for this Live Your Way. And I, I want to share that quote with you because it's, it's really an incredible quote. And the actual quote is this, right? And this is from, where did I read this from? My senior year of college. That's when I first read this. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. This is something that I I believe this is a time because we need to put one foot in front of the other. So we live our way into the answer. In my commencement speech, I gave three lessons, right? And they're very simple. The first is to make the choice to learn. It's something a mentor when I was still in college told me and I've kept it. So every time I'm at a fork in the road, I look at each part and I choose the path to learn. Where do I want to learn the most? And I keep track of it. Like I'm hoarding this. This is my locked room, right? This is what I'm learning. <laughs> the second is embrace your fear. And I, I say embrace your fear because this is an immigrant short kid walking into a public school in Toms River, New Jersey in 1973, everything can scare. Everything could have scared me. And it actually did. That's why I'm a very quiet person, or I was before becoming a TV reporter. But, you know, I, you have to embrace your fear because it's oftentimes you are your own worst enemy. Whatever you're most afraid of, you have to imagine it, touch it, hold it, and then embrace it. And flesh it out, right? Because when you do that, then you rob it of its sting. This has been incredibly useful to me when I get arrested or when I get another arrest warrant. You have that, I have that sinking feeling in my stomach. But if I've already embraced my fear, i.e. the worst case scenarios that can happen, and I've prepared my way out of it, which is what I do for our organization. I work out workflows for worst case scenarios and we drill them. If you embrace your fear, you take the sting out of it, then you move forward. That's the second lesson. And then finally, the third one is, again, something I've learned with Raptor. We build a community. Remember, we build communities of action. But I added a caveat, build a community, not a mob. I think this is what the internet, what social media has done, right? It's kind of like this bandwagon effect where people who... You may not know all the details, but you see the mob coming and you join the mob. Don't join the mob. This is part of the ills of social media. We build communities to help make our world better. That's what we have to do. And, you know, it's anything meaningful can't be done by one person alone. So you, once you figure out who you are and why you do what you do, I think that's the toughest one. It's the self-awareness to know what your North Star is. Once you have that, then build a community moving in the same direction. That's impact. Sorry, I can talk about this stuff forever, right? <laughs> what are you apologizing for? Oh my God, this was absolute gold. Absolute gold, Maria. And you are a treasure. You really are. You are so friggin' brilliant. <laughs> you are, you are so 
unbelievably <sighs> humble and modest and so self-effacing. And I hope our listeners will take that with them as well to try to stay humble, to try to be modest. Maria is showing us the way. Oh my God. Maria, I am so incredibly grateful to you for being a part of my community and the Time for Coffee community, not just the Andrea Koppel community, but the Time for Coffee community. For our listeners, if you want to learn how to break into this unbelievably important field, which is more important now, perhaps than it has been in an incredibly long time, check out show notes to see if Maria's Espresso Shots interview has already dropped. Maria, gratitude admiration. And I'm trying to think what the third would be. There's so many that are, I would just say, keep doing what you're doing, but please continue to be aware and know that you have so many people who support you all around the world, who support you and your incredible colleagues at Rappler. Thank you so much for making time for coffee, so much time for coffee. I think we just basically drank like more than a pot of coffee <laughs> over the last I couple of hours. While we were talking. You did. Was great. Was oh great. my God. Thank you. So no, much no, no, coffee. It's always such a joy to speak with you again and to reconnect. And, you know, I think the tough part about this time period is that you know, if you care about democracy, this is it. You have to do more than vote. It's the United States has gone through a time period where it's just made it and you have to you have to decide. Civic engagement is important. You have to do more than vote. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. Thanks.